0: trees went out to name themselves a the king this, this is grace talks a production of martin, martin umc an open and inviting united, united methodist, methodist church Lord, in martin michigan a co-charge Lord, with Lord, shelbyville united methodist, methodist church, Lord, church which worships on Lord, sunday Lord, at 11 a.m martin worships church. sundays at 9 30 a.m and we would love to see you Will there you but the olive tree said should i stop making oil that i know's human beings our scripture text today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> now I appeal to you brothers and sisters by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you be in agreement and there be no di- then there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you my brothers and sisters What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Cephas, Peter, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. So I imagine that I, like a lot of pastors in our church, looked at this passage this week and had to shrug for just a moment. Because it's a strange thing to come to this passage today in 1 Corinthians in which Paul is writing and talking of divisions in the church. It's strange because of where we are as a denomination. I call it strange because of where we are as a society. Because we have to face it, we are in a place of division. Unhealed hurts that have gone unhealed have created these ruptures that seem to present themselves in so much of our lives together especially here in our church, in the Methodist church, in the the topic regarding human sexuality. So when we come to this passage, when we come to this text today, we find that Paul is talking about not letting there be any divisions among you. And so it may seem somewhat ironic, given that perhaps now, more than almost ever in our contemporary memory, it would seem as though we're more divided than ever it would seem as though we have fallen on nearly every side of every issue there can or could be. It would appear as though we're at such an impasse that the only thing that we can really talk about at this point is who gets the house. With this in mind, we approach this text today in hopes that it can teach us something here in the 21st century. We approach it hoping that maybe we can experience the Holy Spirit who is present with us, hoping that she can teach us something new. So let's examine the text then. Let's break it down. Because what we find is that a schism has formed in the small Christian community of Corinth. And it would seem that there are a few different camps, there are a few different sides that are active. There are those who claim that they, have been, that they belong to Peter. There are those who claim that they belong to Paul. and they, There are those who believe that they belong to another evangelist named Apollos. And there are some who believe that they belong to Christ. As he says in this passage today, Paul is upset by the news, and he's grateful that he can say that he's only baptized a few so that largely he can stay out of this. However, he questions those who are in this place of disagreement, and he asks them this rhetorical question, who were you baptized into? And the answer, of course, being the unifying figure of the faith, Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And so Paul reminds them that you have been united by Christ, united by the cross, It might come as no surprise to you when I say that I believe the church has authority. I believe the church has power, that the church has a moral voice in the world. One of the problems, apart from Christians having gained power and losing that moral vision, is that we've become so divided that we've lost so much of our voice. We've become so divided, and we've returned to this same sort of question: this question of who are you baptized into? Though rather than thinking ourselves being baptized into Peter, baptized into Paul, or Apollos, perhaps now we are more regularly thinking of ourselves as being baptized into a specific denomination. Perhaps even we think of ourselves as being baptized into a certain partisan leaning. A voice that was once, for better or worse, unified, has become scattered and divided. Perhaps what we need to learn from the text today is that regardless of where we stand, we should still be able to join together in our common love of God and neighbor. We should still be able to come together and remember our baptism together. We should still be able to remember that we're not baptized into anything save the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's reported that in the United States, at least, there are some 200 Protestant denominations. It is apparent that after the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, the speed of church divisions has continued to skyrocket. Where once there was just the church, which was itself broken into two traditions in the Great Schism of 1054, when the church broke into what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, now there were suddenly hundreds of churches all with their own Hold on, truth, all with their own convictions, their own traditions, their own belief that my way is the best way. And so began the religious wars. So began this divide between Protestants and Catholics that, in a lot of ways, we still haven't gotten past today. What happened in the Protestant Reformation, and more accurately, what happened as we shifted into our modern way of life, is that the church became just another thing to be consumed. The church became just another thing that you can pick and choose from. If you don't like this church, you can go across the street to the other one. I consistently can't help but think that in this age of divisions, what the world needs is not more denominations but fewer. What if instead of continuing to schism as we've been doing over the past 500 years, what if we began to work towards unifying? Towards remembering our common love, our common interest, our common baptism. What if we worked towards tying the pieces of a broken church together and we returned to our original love, Jesus Christ? I say this in part with the knowledge that there is a structure within the church, and the church can provide a structure, the church can prevent just any sort of whack job from saying whatever they want. The United Methodist system, despite all of its difficulties for becoming a pastor, was able to keep out Jim Jones, who tried to be a Methodist pastor. A church with an order and a structure could actually do something about a a televangelist who just a few days ago made headlines by praying for a miscarriage of all satanic pregnancies. Mind you that her definition of satanic apparently means anyone who disagrees with her specific partisan leaning. Now we are part of a denomination that is considered to have this wide umbrella Which means that in theory we tie ourselves together in certain aspects of the faith. We have this certain adherence to the creeds, a certain expectation that you can walk into a Methodist church and know what you're going to get, in theory. And we have this lived style of a lived tension. of being united despite our differences, of being willing to try and attempt to work out our divides and perhaps even compromise rather than just continuing to do what the rest of the world seems too willing to do and endlessly divide. But here's the the tension. Because with all of this said, there comes with it this question of justice the question of what do we do when people are harmed because of a church or a denomination's actions? Are the abused expected to stay? Methodism has unfortunately broken before, and it seems at times as though the breaks have been understandable and perhaps even justified, whereas once the church broke over silly things like who can sit in what pew... In the case of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME, it broke away because of injustice. It broke away because of racism. It broke away because of slavery. The AME AME was a breakaway of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and it began in 1787 when African American churchgoers in Philadelphia were discriminated against by their white church leaders. And adding to that, the growing disgust and complicity of American and especially Southern Methodism in the institution of slavery, an institution that despite it being recognized by the Methodist church as contrary to the teachings of Christ, despite all this, it was still practiced by many church-going Methodists. And no one in the leadership was really willing, willing to say anything because, hey, the slave owners are big givers. So this instance leaves us with that question of, are divisions justifiable? I think one of the answers for this comes from our own Methodist Wesleyan heritage. John Wesley, who is remembered as being the founder of Methodism, was a man who intended not to start a new tradition, not to start a new denomination. He attempted to reform his own Anglican community. He once offered three simple rules for how the people called Methodists were to act, these being do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. In other words, if we pursue these things, in theory, we should be able to remain together in love. We should be able to remain together in service to God and neighbor. And so when considering disagreements, he likewise said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. It would seem that there are times, such as in the case of the EME, when it's a- AME, when it would seem as though the answer is no. In the face of the injustice of slavery, it would seem that they, the white and black Methodists, had come to such a place when they couldn't love alike. And we all know too well what that inability to love alike ended up doing. Because those who had power, who professed to be Christians, failed to do no harm, to do good, to be an obedient church, and to love their neighbors and hear the cry of the needy, they found their failure going on to break a country and begin a war. Here's the good news. Because we need some of that. I think we as Methodists remain in a unique position where we can show the world and even the church at large how to love and how to disagree in love. I think we can still show the world how to heal divides, how to work towards justice and fulfill that great commission and our own Methodist mission statement of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We've heard that message since we were kids, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so what if we remembered to practice that? What if we looked at others not with demeaning labels or nicknames, not by dehumanizing other people, but what if we looked at our brothers and sisters in Christ as he calls us to look at them as Christ himself? As angels, we are entertaining. As a people united in the spirit of Christ, as a divine humanity even, made in the image of God. For so long, we've been fed this message, this message of don't talk politics, don't talk religion at the dinner table. In the age of Facebook, that seems to hold even more true. But what we found, and I'm quoting here, is that being taught to avoid talking about politics and religion has led to an understanding of politics and religion. What we should have been taught was how to have civil conversations about difficult topics. Disagreements and debates and discussions, these things are healthy. These things indicate trust. These things indicate a willingness to show weakness. What these things do is they create room for us to compromise, for us to discuss and plan for a better future. Brief aside, there's really, though, not much room for compromise in the face of some things, in the face of slavery and genocide. It would seem as though compromise isn't really something worth pursuing. But when it is acceptable, this being the majority of the time, when we allow room for compromise to work, we find ourselves working towards the common good. The problem is that when we lose the willingness to actually talk about our differences when we lose the ability to talk about the things that we disagree with, what ends up happening is we end up in the same place that the American government has seemed to be in since the beginning. So preoccupied with maintaining the status quo, maintaining the superiority and the victory of my side over yours, that it misses the opportunity to better the lives of all of us especially the lives of those who are most in need? Again, I like to think the answer is found in our Methodist tradition because we have this practice that we don't really practice that often, known as holy conferencing. Holy conferencing is what the general and annual conferences and any church meetings were supposed to be. Holy conferencing was thought of as a spiritual practice, a sort of joining together as the body of Christ and discussing matters. It was a means of resolving our conflicts, of moving forward and serving God more faithfully. It was thought of as being just as meaningful in our lives together as worship is, as prayer is, as service towards our neighbor It was, so to speak, a means of grace. A means of grace which means in a way, or which means a way that we experience the grace of God. What has happened, though, is that we've bought into this narrative which tells us that these sorts of meetings are boring, that these sorts of meetings are way too political, they're way too divisive, and so rather than seeing ourselves as going into these conferences, going into church meetings with the expectation that we will meet the Holy Spirit, we go in with the expectation that my side is going to win. When the vote passed at General Conference, I was there, and what I saw was two circles start up. One circle began to sing a song of mourning, and one circle began to sing a song that was rejoicing. It felt as though the Holy Spirit had left the building. And what if we broke through this? What if instead of just continuing in this attitude of we're not going to see the Holy Spirit here, so why try? What if we moved back to this idea of holy conferencing? What if we moved back to this idea of seeing our meetings, seeing our conversations, seeing our discussions as places where not only might we encounter the Holy Spirit, but we go in expecting to meet the Holy Spirit? Perhaps this would shift our focus as a church. Perhaps this would shift our focus how, as to how we look at ourselves in our own community. Perhaps it would open our eyes to see where God is already moving in our midst. Perhaps it would allow us to understand how we can be those weapons of peace. a church that is passionately in love with God and passionately in love with our neighbors, a church that is passionately in love with justice, mercy, and peace. If we could model that here, and I think that often we do, but we can always be better, then imagine the impact we could have in our community. Imagine the impact we could have in our own conference, in our own denomination, and perhaps even in our world. Amen.